Morning, everyone. Um, I am a Westfall, Westfall girl through and through. Um, I've lived here most of my life. And um, when I was in grade seven at Westfall Senior Primary School, surprise, surprise, um, we went on a tour uh, to what was then called the Eastern Transvaal. It's now in Pumalanga. And um, we visited God's window and the book, books like potholes. And we visited the, the three rondavels. There were a whole bunch of waterfalls that I remember. Um, and my memory of it is pretty hazy, but I do remember that it was, it was incredibly beautiful. Um, I have proof of this tour somewhere in my archives. Um, the photography is not really good. I was only 12. And also I had one of those cameras, you know, when you only had one chance to get the right shot. Remember those ones? And you only knew if it was the right shot three weeks later when you developed the spool and then you're like, oh, but you can't go back, you know? You know that. I'm sure some of you remember the days when you only had those cameras. Um, but I remember it to be incredibly beautiful, and um, I am actually hoping to go back to that part of the world. We haven't been back there um, in my adult years. But I do have one memory of that trip that stands out very clearly. Perhaps it's because it was so extremely bizarre. Um, so we, we were in Pilgrim's Rest, and we had split up into groups, and uh, we... I mean, I, this again, the hazy memory. We were walking down the main street and we had about an hour on our own and then we had to meet up at the graveyard um, at the end of this time and we could go and explore. And so this group of myself and a few friends, we were walking down and checking out the shops and what else we could find. And then there was this long bearded man who walked towards us quite intently and um, he started to tell us that he was Moses um, not just any Moses, but in fact the Moses from the Bible. And he needed to remind us of the Ten Commandments that he had received from the Lord. So at that point, um, our group of 12-year-olds did what 12-year-olds do best when faced with a situation like that. We avoided eye contact and giggled our way down the street. And um, I have no idea what happened to that man. But that moment is etched in my mind. It's so strange, this this Moses man who came towards us in Pilgrim's Rest. And I remember that event distinctly. What a strange claim to have made. What a strange claim to have made. We're going through a book study on the book of John at the moment. And um, I'm going to be touching on quite a large chunk of John this morning, chapters 5 through 10. But what I'm going to be looking at specifically this morning are some of the claims that Jesus made about himself some of which were so out there that any 12-year-olds in the crowd would have been giggling all the way down the street because they didn't know how else to cope with these claims. There's a general pattern that we see. Jesus makes a claim about himself and he says some pretty outrageous things. It leads to misunderstanding or to controversy. And then people are forced to decide for themselves whether they think it's true or not, and who they actually think Jesus is. Now, now, as I've said, these claims are pretty out there. But if you understand the context, they're actually even more out there. They're actually more outrageous, but they are totally relevant to the context in which we're speaking. John speaks quite specifically about the different festivals that are happening throughout these chapters. Um, and that gives us a bit of this context. Now, partly um, festivals, the, the Jewish feasts are a big deal in the Jewish culture. Um, 
They're a big deal in the Jewish calendar, which is really cool for us because it gives us a timeline. You can kind of, you can kind of plot, oh, this was around about that time, and, and then the next time they say something about this festival, oh, that's about three months later. It gives us a really great timeline. But Jesus uses these feasts to make significant claims about himself. He uses these feasts to actually show people that he, ha- he has come to fulfill these festivals and that these festivals were actually all about pointing to him, the Messiah. It's a beautiful picture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We know in Scripture God provides picture after picture of this amazing plan that he has for mankind. And one of the most beautiful prophetic pictures is outlined for us in these Jewish festivals. The Hebrew word for feasts is murdom, and it literally means appointed times. And they're not just talking about the appointed times, like these are in April or these are in spring or whatever, but God carefully planned and orchestrated all of these seven festivals to point out and reveal to us a really special story. And for Christians, these special days demonstrate the work of redemption through Jesus. And one of the clues that we get from Leviticus that the feasts have more significance than mere tradition is found in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4. It says, These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies, which in the King James Version, the holy convocations, love it, you are to proclaim at their appointed times. And, and if you look at the Hebrew translated as holy convocations, sacred assemblies, it, it speaks about rehearsals. The word speaks about rehearsal. And so these feasts have these appointed times of rehearsal for events that are to occur in the future. And Paul, actually, in the New Testament, gives us the same conclusion. He says in Colossians chapter 2, he says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You see, it's not about the feasts. It's about Christ. Because Christ is the fulfillment of all these feasts. And so we're going to dive in and look specifically through the book of John where we see Jesus making claims about how he is to fulfill these feasts. It's a beautiful picture. So we're going to jump in in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3. It starts, this is the the passage that is about all of these festivals and feasts, and it starts by saying, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. So this is a, a weekly thing. And speaking about the Sabbath, if we jump into the New Testament, enter into John chapter 5, and we see Jesus healing a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, It's the Sabbath, and it gets Jesus in trouble. But Jesus takes this opportunity to point out, this is what he says, that his father is at work on the Sabbath, and the son can only do what he sees the father doing. So if you remember, God created the world in six days, right? The seventh day he rested. 
to set a pattern for how the world would work. But outside of that, Scripture speaks to us about God never resting. He doesn't need to rest. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He is perfect. He never gets tired. So why does he need to rest? So the Father is at work on the Sabbath, and the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. So the Pharisees realize that Jesus is calling God his Father, and he's making himself equal with holy God, and they want to kill him. Now this happens again in John chapter 9. Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath. Now why did Jesus keep on healing people on the Sabbath? These were both people also who had been disabled for an extended period of time. The paralyzed man, we read in the Bible that he was paralyzed for 38 years. The blind man was blind from birth. Jesus definitely could have found these people the next day to heal them. I mean, perhaps he stumbled upon them and he was overcome with compassion and he had a busy schedule, so he just healed them then. Or perhaps he did this in order to start talking more openly about who he was. Rich spoke to us last week about signs that, that Jesus performed. And then many of these signs were done just with one person, and often afterwards he would say, don't tell anyone about this because my time, the time for me is not yet right. Now, if we look again, I said it gives us a nice timeline. Chapters 6 to 10 of John is about the last year of Jesus' life. Um, So chapter 6, verse 4 says the Passover was was almost near, and we know that Jesus died on Passover. This was the last year of his life. And so perhaps the time was now right. And Jesus started to speak more openly and take advantage of opportunities to speak about who he was and to invite people in on this whole journey of redemption that he wanted to bring people in on. And just a side note, in both of these cases where Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, it got him into huge trouble, caused a huge uproar, and the Pharisees went crazy and, you know, asked all these questions. And Jesus was nowhere to be found. But on both cases, afterwards, Jesus went and found these men. For me, it's just, it just a side note, but what a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. He takes advantage of this opportunity to heal these people on the Sabbath so that he can speak about himself. But he still sees that individual. He still heals that individual. He still loves that individual so much so that he goes and finds them the next day to speak to them. How beautiful is our Jesus. So the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of God, who's one with God, these signs and these statements, these claims about himself definitely caused controversy. Caused controversy. So the claim that was made, I am the son of God. God has given me the authority to give life and to bring healing. It doesn't matter what day it is. And the response, the response of the individuals and many around them was to believe. The response of others, particularly the Pharisees, was to begin to persecute him. And they wanted to kill him. What's your response to that claim? If we move on to chapter 6, as I said, verse 4 says the Jewish Passover festival was near. And the Jewish Passover festival is the first first day in a week-long festival that's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we are shown the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. 
It's quite a, quite a famous story um, where Jesus miraculously provides food for 5,000 men. It doesn't say how many women and children were there, so I'm guessing a lot more than 5,000 people. And he feeds them with a little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. And after this, Jesus and his, his disciples move on, but the miracle that he's performed leads the crowds to want to follow him because they follow after him. They, they want more. They, they, they want more bread. They ask for more bread. And so he tells them that he is the bread of life. So this happens coming up to Passover. Let's just put a bit of context here. Many of us might be familiar with the Feast of Passover. Um, it's what the disciples were celebrating at the Last Supper with Jesus. And um, it was celebrated to remember when the Israelites were in Egypt and God wanted to set them free. He used Moses to set them free. And um, Pharaoh had a hard heart and decided he didn't want to let them go. And so there were those ten plagues. And the last of the plagues was that the firstborn in each household would be killed. And um, the Israelites were to take an unblemished lamb and were to sacrifice it and paint the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their home. And then the angel of death would pass over that home. That's why the feast is called Passover. Um, And that firstborn would be saved. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrates the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness. So after they've left. So after, after Passover and after the Exodus, they only ate unleavened bread for 30 days. And that was then substituted by the manna that came from heaven, that spiritual food that God provided for them in the desert. Now the fact that it was unleavened bread symbolized to them that they weren't taking any of the contamination from Egypt They weren't taking that contaminating influence with them, but rather, so in scripture, yeast and leaven represent sin. They were leaving that all behind, and rather, they were moving forward with only the pure bread of life, only the pure word of God. So we jump back to John chapter 6, right? People are gearing up to celebrate Passover to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Bread is a big deal at this time. It's a time where bread and wine are normal elements of these feasts. And that's the time when Jesus chooses to say, I am the bread of life. It's totally in context. It's totally intentional. And it's extremely controversial. If we read in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus carries on. He says to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I am them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I can just imagine. I mean, even some of you are like, whoa. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, what is this man talking about? You can just imagine the people standing there going, did I just hear him right? And then he says it again. He repeats himself quite a lot in that, in that thing. He's making a gigantic statement. He wants everybody to know what he is saying. And what is he saying? Well, you know what? The fact that the loaves and fishes that Jesus provided never ran out, and actually they gathered baskets full afterwards, after thousands and thousands of people had eaten from five loaves and two fish. That was intended to demonstrate that Jesus was the divine source of spiritual nourishment that never runs out, never fails, that he can provide and sustain people eternally. They had seen the miracle. They didn't understand it. They didn't grasp any significance from the sign. In fact, they chased after Jesus wanting more bread, more rye loaves to fill their belly. And so Jesus gets more specific. For some, I guess he got more confusing. He definitely got more controversial. At this time of the year, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Jesus claims, I am the bread of life. I am what brings life. Not the food that nourishes your body. Eat me. Take me into your lives. Live through me. And the response from people, well, many left, Scripture tells us. Many disciples left. This is a hard teaching, they said. Who can accept it? And Jesus then asks his disciples, aren't you going to leave me as well? But Simon Peter answers, what a beautiful answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What's your response? If we move on to John chapter 7 through to the beginning of chapter 10, it's a block of stories again set around another festival, around the Feast of Tabernacles. And it tells us that Jesus went to the feast, but he went in secret because the Pharisees were looking for him and people wanted to kill him. So he sent his disciples, he sent his brothers ahead of him, and then he went in secret. And it tells us that halfway through the feast, which is an eight-day-long feast, he begins to teach in the temple courts. Now, a bit of context to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles begins on the 15th day of the seventh month, 
after the crops were gathered. So they've all gathered all their crops and then they celebrate. And Israelites are supposed to build and live in these tabernacles, these temporary dwellings. They called them booths. So kind of they made them out of branches that were woven together. And they were supposed to live there for seven days to remember that the Israelites lived in temporary dwellings when God brought them out of Egypt. And also to remember that God dwelt with them there, that he tabernacled with them while they were in the desert. So that's what the feast is all about, to look at how God has provided for them, to look back at the journey that God has taken them on. The feast is celebrated by a full week of rejoicing, of dancing, of singing, of feasting, and it's called the season of our joy. What a cool name, hey? And when Jesus was on earth, it, it, it was most likely the most dramatic and uh, the most gigantic of the Lord's feasts. It, it was one of three pilgrim feasts, which, which meant that everyone who was able was supposed to come to Jerusalem to present themselves to the Lord. Now, two of the other major symbols of this feast are water and light. So you've got the booths, the, the, the temporary dwellings, and then water and light. And the water was a reminder of their dependence on God. It was a request for, for God for enough water to sustain them for the coming year and to give thanks for the water he had provided for that previous year. The light, because they were looking to a day where they no longer depended on the light of the sun, but they would enter the kingdom of God where they would have the Lord for an everlasting light. We read about in Isaiah. And the days of their mourning will be over. And so they're waiting for this true light, the everlasting light. So how the festival went down, I mean, this is spectacular. I can just imagine being there. So on the first day, remember there's, there's eight days of this feast. On the first morning of the feast, in terms of the water side of stuff, this procession of priests would go down to the pool of Siloam, and they would carry this gigantic golden container. They would fill up enough water to last them for the entire feast. And then they would bring it back to the temple. And when they brought the, temp the, the water back to the temple, there was this huge celebration. The shofar would blow, and the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem, they would all wave their branches and their, and their leaves, and the priests who carried the water, they would walk around the altar, and they would recite Psalms 113 to 118 as they walked around the altar. And then the priest on duty would take the water and pour it out onto the altar. And this was an act of prayer and an expression of dependence upon God, like we said, to pour out his blessing of rain upon the earth in the coming season. So that would happen. At the same time, this is even more spectacular, they had, with the light side of stuff, they had these gigantic golden candlesticks. We read in history books that they were 75 feet high. And on the first day of this feast, these candlesticks were set up in the court of the woman, which is really significant because, remember, the, the temple had areas where some people could go and others couldn't go. The court of the woman, anyone could be. And so they set them up there so that anybody who desired to come and experience this, this feast and to celebrate, anyone was granted access. And um, these young men would then climb up ladders to light these golden candlesticks. They would fill them with gallons of olive oil, and the wicks were made out of old priestly garments. And they would light these candles. And these, these gigantic candlesticks would light up the whole temple. I mean, you can just imagine families coming in and sitting there. I mean, we've got small kids. We would be like, come here it comes. You know, sit here on the blankets. It's like waiting for a, for a fireworks display or something. Like, it's, it's going to come. And imagine that. And then it's lit. 
And when it was lit, there were 15 steps from the courts of Israel to the courts of the women. And uh, the, the priests would read out and would chant the Psalms of Ascent. One psalm on each step. Those are Psalms 120 to 134. And it was this massive thing. Um, at the base of these candles, these people would be dancing with lighted torches in their hands. They would be singing songs. The Levites would have harps and lyres and cymbals and play all these instruments. It was a huge festival. Season of our joy indeed, eh? Hey? And then there was the final day of the celebration. It was called the Great Day of the Feast. And both of these, this water celebration and the light celebration would reach its climax. The water, what would happen is the priests would circle the altar seven times. And they would pour out the water with great ceremony. It was called Hashanah Rabbah, which means save now. And there was this prayerful request to God, their provider, for water. John 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Imagine the uproar that this must have caused. The priest has just poured out the waters and appealed to the creator God to provide water for his people. And Jesus, as if answered to the prayer, tells people to come to him for water. I am the living water. What a radical statement. It's a beautiful statement as it is. But in that context, that is a radical statement. As I said, the light celebration is also going on. And that continues on for full seven days. And then what happens is the lights are extinguished. And the eighth day is a holy and a solemn assembly. It's a reminder of their dependence on God. A reminder of their waiting for the eternal light. And on that eighth day, in John chapter 8, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When the temple goes dark, a rabbi Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Those aren't just words. The significance of those words is intense. The claims that Jesus is making are completely enormous. He's saying, I am the revelation of God's glory. I am the Messiah. I am the eternal light that you are waiting for. I am the perfect light of God. These are huge moments. To people to whom light and water had huge meaning. And they caused huge controversy, and people had to decide. 
And so there's this game, if anyone is thirsty, drink of me. I'm the light of the world. And the response that we get, well, people were confused on hearing this. People were, some people were saying, surely this man is the prophet. Surely he is the Messiah. And others were still saying, well, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? I don't understand. This is so confusing. What's your response to those claims? So Jesus makes these bold statements. The time is coming as it is for us where it's coming close to when he's going to give his life. Easter is just around the corner. He wants people to follow. He wants people to know who he is. Because following requires every part of them. It's entire sacrifice. He doesn't want them to follow just anyone. There's lots of rabbis out there, but he wants them to follow the Messiah. He knows who he is. He wants them to know as well. He wants them to know. He wants them to follow. He wants them to decide for themselves, and he wants them to believe. And I believe that he wants the same of us today. Those claims about Jesus haven't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still the light of the world. He is still the one, if we go to him, we will never grow thirsty again. He is still the bread of life. He is still the Son of God. And he wants the same of us today to know and to follow, to decide for ourselves and to believe. I am the bread of life. He's the one that satisfies. He is the one that will fill. Are we just here for the show of what Jesus can give us, like those people who he fed? Or are we ready to live not by bread alone, but by the words that come from the mouth of God? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. What's our response to this? Are we ready to drink from him? Are we ready to believe him, to trust him, to stop relying on our own provision? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Are we willing to walk in this light? To walk on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even more, are we willing to be the light of the world and not hide our lamp under a bowl, but put it on a stand for all to see? Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Will we believe what he said? Will we believe who he says he is? Let's decide for ourselves this morning who we think Jesus is, who he is in our lives. We're going to worship for a little while. Let's take some time to perhaps rearrange our lives internally and put Jesus in his rightful place. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are.
Jesus, we, we thank you that you came to earth. That you left the glories of heaven and you came to earth so that we could know, so that we could believe, and so that we could be rescued because of your sacrifice. God, I pray for us sitting now in this place, God, that remind us of where, we've, where we're struggling with unbelief. And won't you restore our faith? God, help us to reshuffle. The light of the world doesn't deserve some little corner of our, of our lives on Sundays, but deserves everything. And so God, speak to us as we worship, and may we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.